Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what's missing at Lime Ridge Mall? How about a new arena? A flock of former NDP candidates in New Brunswick have all jumped to the Green Party. Is this a trend? And Hong Kong has withdrawn its extradition bill that have caused all the protests there. Will that stop them? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, chatter uh, going around the hammer again about a the possibility of a new arena, this time at Lime Ridge Mall. Of course, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, Michael Andlauer, and Lime Ridge talking uh, about possibly uh, taking the old Sears store, I believe it is, and converting that into an arena-type uh, complex within the mall. Uh, as you can imagine, that um, that starts uh, council uh, to wagging um, simply because it's, it becomes a, a debate over whether you do everything down in the lower city or whether you venture up to the mountain and uh, and have something of this uh, stature up there. Let's bring in Larry Danny, former mayor, city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Is this going to be another mountain, uh, lower city issue? Well, um, it, it certainly seems to be shaping up to have some elements of that. Uh, but I'm hoping not. Um, I'm hoping that uh, people will, uh, you know, have respectful debates and make decisions based not on location, but what's best for the city. And uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, again, when we're talking stadiums, arenas, gathering centers, right. many many have said downtown is where it's at. Is there room yeah. for an idea yeah. like this? So, so let me let me uh, uh, give some full disclosure first of all that I did do some work for Global Spectrum, who is currently managing the uh, the uh, first Ontario place um, and um, the former Hamilton place as well, uh, the first Ontario concert hall. So, uh, I'm not doing work for them, but um, through that work, I got to know a lot about the building, a lot more than I thought I knew. Um, and so I do have some opinions, um, and uh, I think that, uh, that uh, you know, the arena is uh, what it is in terms of age, and uh, all infrastructure has some um, um, a life expectancy uh, and, a, and a shelf life, if you will. And so this arena is of a certain vintage that it needs some work done, some major work done, um, all over the uh, the uh, the age of the arena, um, so I think it's wise for council to be looking at a major asset and decide what the future should be. Um, and of course, rolled into this is the whole debate about um, uh, the change in location, uh, especially when you get a, a, a sports owner like Michael Andlauer who's a very successful, deep-pocketed businessman who says that he's willing to put some of his own money into the venue if indeed um, it is changed to uh, Lime Ridge Mall, as they're stipulating. So council, I know, also has a vision that they've asked staff to look at um, finding a downtown location, uh, whether it's on the same site or another site uh, remains to be seen, that would accomplish the same thing. It would downsize the arena and um, would uh, would uh, produce a 10,000-seat arena that Mr. Andlauer seems to favor for his hockey franchise, and, that, that, and therefore the debate. So uh, there's going to be a motion, I understand, that they're debating as we speak, uh, which will talk about um, accommodating Mr. Andlauer or uh, simply going with council's uh, plan to do something else downtown. At the end of the day, who pays for this, and won't that be the determining factor? In other words, if, if Ann Lauer and Cadillac Fairview uh, are on board and are willing to pay uh, part of the freight for this, uh, whereas I, I don't see anybody lining up to do that downtown at this point, does how, how much clout does that have at the end of the well, day? Well, I, I would think it needs to be taken very seriously. I mean, it's very unusual for a private enterprise to uh, help fund, even help fund, never mind fund, but help fund 
uh, public infrastructure such as arenas. It's always up to the uh, taxpayer to do that sort of thing. And witness the the debate on the um, on the stadium that we had a few years ago uh, that cost 150 million dollars, uh, 50 million of which uh, I believe it was 50 million uh, that the city contributed. The rest was uh, contributed by the province and the federal government because of the uh, uh, the games that we hosted uh, uh, a few years ago in the city. So the Ticats, which which are a major, uh, the major tenant for uh, Iverwood, or at least uh, Tim Horton Field, um, didn't pony up uh, any of that $150 million. They did they did spend uh, money on uh, on the uh, billboard and scoreboard rather and, and things like that. But it's unusual for private enterprise to step up to the plate and say we want to spend our own money. Uh, because the arena, at the end of the day, will belong to the city, uh, as will the upkeep costs and, and replacement costs and so on, which is what we're facing right now. So I think council is smart to look at it and, and see whether there's any uh, merit to uh, having these partners share in the cost. Here's the problem, though, um, that an arena um, is uh, and the location uh, for the arena um, is, is partly about money, but it's also about other factors. And location is always important uh, in terms of, uh, um, you know, where you put this infrastructure. And part of the equation as well is what do you do with the existing arena that's there now if it's no longer a hockey arena? Um, is this more about what to do with Lime Ridge or what to do with the Bulldogs? Well, so this is why it's complicated, right? Because it's about everything, okay? It's, it's, it's about the current arena, which, by the way, in spite of, this is one of the things that I learned in doing some work there. In spite of the fact that it is aged, and there's no question about that, it functions very well. Yeah. It brings in hundreds of thousands uh, of people in the, the core of our city every year because of the games and the concerts that happened at that arena. It also brings in um, major acts that need 18,000 seats. Yeah. And I'm talking about Paul McCartney, I'm talking about Billy Joel, I'm talking about acts of that ilk that wouldn't come to a smaller arena. So so whatever decision um, the Hamilton Council makes, it needs to also understand by downsizing the arena, you're essentially putting yourself in a B-level market rather than the occasional A-level market that uh, that we're currently in because of the size of this arena. So, um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, uh, criticize the asset that we've got. We should be promoting it uh, because it is our asset. And now that doesn't mean that it you know that that change cannot be made. It just needs to be done with fully understanding all aspects of the dynamics here, because it is about the bulldogs, but it's also about uh, what you know? What's good for the downtown core? It's also in terms of attracting A-level um, uh, acts to come into the city. Uh, you know, we're never going to compete with Toronto in terms of the draw that Toronto is, but occasionally we do compete with them, and we do so quite successfully. Uh, you know, we, we've had major uh, uh, music festivals, for example, uh, in the city as well, which we would be saying no to. So we need to council needs to keep all of those things in mind as it makes a judicious uh, decision. It Mr. is Bauer, of course. He's concerned about his hockey team, and mm-hmm. he wants a venue that whose size fits his franchise, and that's important. He's a contributing, mm-hmm. um, a, a very successful business in the city. Should not be dismissed. But he's not the only consideration that council should have, of course. Uh, is First Ontario Centre worth fixing up? Has it got to the point where you're just putting good money after bad now? Or as you said, is it, is it you know, I mean, just because a building's a certain age doesn't mean it necessarily gets tore down. Is it worth saving? Well, so, and again, um, what, what I've learned over the last uh, couple of years where, where I've actually had to sit down with people to, 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 and listen to discussions about, about the building... Uh, the building works very well. Uh, yes, uh, some aspects need to be improved and money need to be spent. Uh, and the city is well aware of that. There have been reports on those things as well. 
but um, it, it all depends on your vision for the city. Um, there was at one time, in fact, the reason that it was built was so that an NHL team could be drawn to the city. Yeah. We're saying no to that. You know, I think it was a bit of a pipe dream all along. Uh, and I was in the mayor's chair when we had suitors coming to us. And Hamilton was always held as a stalking horse um, uh, for other interests that uh, people had around the country. Uh, but but we are officially, if we downsize, saying no to that particular dream. And maybe it's a waking up to reality and leaving it at that. Um, and money needs to be spent. So council has to decide several things, I think. One is, uh, where do you put that money? What does it do to the neighborhood you're going into um, if you put money in uh, in a different locale? And what do you do with the locale you've got now? What do you do with the arena you've got now? And remember, uh, our downtown is very strategic and very attractive to business development right now. So I don't think, uh, you know, if the arena leaves, I don't think that's the end of the world mm. in terms of developing a different vision for the downtown without the arena. I think that could work as well. But all of those factors need to be weighed with, you know, um, in the cold light of day, with, with logic and not emotion, uh, and, and almost with, with laser-like accuracy in terms of hitting it right. Because if you get it wrong, you get it wrong for decades to come. Maybe we should take First Ontario Centre and turn it into a shopping mall. Oh, no, yeah, never mind. We got one of those. Uh, uh, one of those. <laughs> but, you know, in that regard, and I've written an essay about this, actually, uh, which was published in the local paper. Um, I mean, if you look at the old Maple Leaf Gardens yep. uh, in, in Toronto, um, that's exactly what they've done. They've created a smaller arena that services some, some uh, university hockey and a shopping center and business center around it. It works very well. And if people remember the old gardens, you know, it was a huge yep. arena back in the day. Larry Diani has been with us, former mayor city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, a uh, pleasure listening to your opinion and your thoughts. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thank you, Scott. It is 1223. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, yeah, the debate continues. Uh, and this one's not going away simply because uh, either you have to do something with First Ontario to uh, First Ontario Centre to take it to the next level uh, or, or the next level of survival, which is basically even just continuing on the way that it is. Or do you tear the thing down and start over again? Uh, again, uh, way back when, when we were talking stadiums and, and, and LRT and such, the city was in a very, very much a different place than it is now. Uh, the, the downtown core was pretty much uh, uh, left to its, own, uh, to its own devices. It was, it was, well, we remember what the downtown was like 10, 20 years ago and the renaissance that has happened there now. Um, do we need these attractions all to be downtown now is the downtown doing fine uh, thank you very much the way that it is you know way back when we were all looking for you know this silver bullet something to come in that would save the downtown whether it was a a sports franchise a new stadium this that the other something was going to have to help hamilton's downtown do we need that now you know, is is the downtown coming along fine without having another major attraction down there? Is it time to say, hey, you know what? Hamilton's recovered. The downtown has recovered or is certainly on its way to doing so. So we can look at the rest of the city as uh, possible sites for these sorts of venues. You know, at one time it was all about Renovating the downtown. It was all about energizing the downtown. Maybe we don't need that anymore. Maybe that was the way we were looking at it back in the day. When Hamilton needed a kickstart, needed something to rejuvenate. To start the renaissance that we're now all enjoying. But it's on its way. Hamilton's turned the corner. Does it need to be building its facilities downtown? My first reaction, I'm a massive supporter of downtown. I fought for the stadium to be downtown. I fought for the West Harbor. 
Now, I don't think we should put a, 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 an arena in the West Harbor because it's, it's, it's just a big concrete box. You know, an open-air stadium, that's a big, that's a different, that's a different, it's a different thing. So, yeah, where do you, where do you put it downtown? You put it in the same spot, you know? I mean, and again, as Larry said, you, you take your big arena, and even though it's, you know, sort of a dinosaur, it still holds enough people to have a major concert tour and something that you would lose with a 10,000-seat arena. That's just the way it is. So, you know, it, it's an interesting debate. It's going to be fascinating to see how it moves forward and whether it will have the same, um, uh, whether it, 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 it gets our attention the way the LRT uh, debate did, the way the stadium fiasco did. be interesting to see how it all pans out. But really, at the end of the day, um, I think this is more about Lime Ridge and how they can develop it and get the money to free this, uh, to free up the money to get something done, uh, because it probably is not on uh, top of mind for uh, Hamilton City Council. Although sooner or later they are going to have to figure out what they're going to do with First Ontario Centre. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fourteen former NDP candidates and uh, as well as a federal party executive uh, jumped over to the Green Party in New Brunswick on Tuesday, uh, just before the uh, federal election campaign is is expected to uh, kick off. Uh, NDP not really well represented or haven't been uh, formed government or or represented there in any stretch of the imagination. However, uh, that being said, it certainly doesn't bode well when uh, the the candidates that you do have are jumping to a, a another party. Uh, many complaining that uh, Jagmeet Singh has has not been in New Brunswick, and, and they just feel like they're being ignored. So let's bring in David Kuhn. He is a leader for the Green Party in New Brunswick and is on the line now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Good afternoon, Scott. How do you explain uh, fourteen members, uh, former candidates, coming over from the NDP? Well, you know, uh, times change, and uh, it's a very different world today. And I think more and more people, uh, like these former uh, candidates for the NDP, are seeing the Greens as the party for our times. It's a very insecure time for lots of people when they think about what kind of life we're going to leave our children in the face of things like uh, the climate breakdown and uh, economic insecurity. And so um, people are finding a home in the Green Party. Now, uh, we were talking about slogans yesterday and the Green Party is moving forward. This is, this is federally, not provincially. Uh, not left, uh, not right, forward together. So, uh, and we've talked to, uh, to, to members of the Green Party before. Many tried to characterize you as a left-leaning party. You see the NDP jump from, from their party to, to yours. Does that necessarily mean that this is a perfect fit? Is this a left or leaning party? Well... I, I would say in New Brunswick, yes. Um, I certainly won't speak on behalf of any of the other Green parties in, in Canada or federally. But uh, we, unlike the, the NDP or Liberals or Conservatives, we actually are separate parties who share common principles. Uh, so, um, you know, I think the answer, you'd have to ask the others where, where they feel they fit on that spectrum. But, but I guess one of the reasons the federal party picked the slogan they did is that spectrum doesn't work that well anymore when you look at one of the greatest divisions uh, today is among the parties that don't understand we are part uh, of the environment. We're not separate from it, and their policies um, are rolled out as if we are separate from it, and that's why we've got ourselves in such a mess uh, with things like the uh, climate crisis, and now in New Brunswick, certainly on the East Coast here, we're having to put a lot of money into protecting our families and communities from the consequences of climate breakdown in the form of flooding and, and Lyme disease, which is spreading quite rapidly throughout our province, to pick two examples. How do you explain the rise of the Green Party of late? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I think uh, people see uh, our conviction uh, we see see our, our compassion, uh, see our approach to politics, which is very much one that is rooted in our communities, and that was one of the key things in the declaration of support the former NDP candidates indicated in, in uh, coming over to the Greens, that uh, we're very much um, uh, there to represent our communities, 
um, uh, rather than overwhelmingly um, representing our party. Uh, is the Green Party more than just green? How do you describe the, the Green Party's, like, for example, fiscal policy, or, or is it now up to the Greens to try to uh, present what the rest of the party is all about, what the rest of the policy is all about? Well, sure. I mean, you'll, you'll see the, uh, the platform, federal platform rolled out, uh, I expect, very soon. Um, and people can judge by themselves, but I can speak to uh, our own platform in last year's election, um, which helped gain us uh, three seats in the Legislative Assembly of 49. And, uh, you know, as it, it, we're very focused on, on um, people. And uh, one of the, our big issues, for example, is fixing our health care system and addressing uh, mental health, uh, for, particularly for youth, uh, but for everyone. Uh, and uh, uh, addressing poverty, which is a huge issue for Brunswick. So, uh, you know, the difference, the difference between our party and the other parties in particular is on the environment. We take it seriously. Is the Green Party replacing the NDP as the third option for Canadians? Um, is it becoming a protest vote? Or is it more than it, that? I can certainly in New Brunswick uh, and in Prince Edward Island, uh, the Greens have replaced the NDP as, uh, well, in New Brunswick, the third party, and in Prince Edward Island, the second party, where they formed the official opposition to the uh, Conservative uh, minority government. So so there's a, a big sea change occurring uh, in politics, certainly on the East Coast, and uh, that is starting to um, extend uh, across the country now, and you'll see uh, green MPs elected from the East Coast this time. Uh, you'll see uh, more green MPs elected from the West Coast, and I expect we'll see some green MPs from somewhere in the center. Is this is the success of this movement? Is it about being green? Is it about all of the concern in regard to uh, the environment, or is it that it appears the Greens are doing politics differently? Uh, I can use the one example of not trying to be characterized as left or right? It's fundamentally, I think, people see us as doing uh, politics differently. Uh, as MLAs or MPs, we work very differently. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a, a sense that uh, we are not, uh, that we are very much focused on solving problems um, shoulder to shoulder with the, the, the people in our province or the folks in our country. Um, rather than um, obsessed with uh, uh, electoral success and, and holding on to power or getting power. Uh, this story obviously seems to be getting uh, quite a bit of traction right across the country, obviously because... A bit of, of a splash, I'd say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and good for you guys, uh, you know, obviously because there's a federal election uh, on the horizon. Are, is the rest of the country making a bigger deal of this than what it really is? Uh, and, you know, many have said the NDP wasn't that prominent anyway in New Brunswick. Uh, how are you viewing how the rest of the country is viewing all of this? Yeah, I was wondering how it would, uh, it would resonate across Canada. Um, certainly in New Brunswick, the, um, the sort of erosion or the, the movement from the NDP to the Greens and, and from other parties as well, obviously, would, wouldn't elect MLAs if, uh, if other uh, folks who traditionally supported other parties weren't voting for us too. Uh, but with respect to the NDP, the, you know, people started to come across in 2014 in that, first, in that election, uh, and I think it's just that this has become uh, a bit more dramatic with this announcement from 14 former candidates for the New Democrats signing a declaration of support and, and joining the Green Party in a very public way. But in 2014, a, a very prominent uh, Democratic uh, candidate who had run before uh, ran as the Green candidate in St. John Harbor uh, in 2014, 2018. So really that marked the beginning of it. But, uh, but I guess the, the, the point is that uh, people who are no longer feeling at home in their parties, whether they're progressive conservatives or, or liberals or new Democrats, uh, have been moving towards the Greens. Um, that is accounting for our growth and, uh, and our success uh, on the West and East Coasts. What do you want Canadians to take away from the, the messaging? What's the message here from the Green Party as you approach the next election? 
Well, again, I mean, I'm not going to speak for the Federal Green Party because I'm a provincial Green Party leader, and that's up to Elizabeth May to uh, to address. Um, but I will say that uh, um, Elizabeth uh, has been traveling to all regions of the country, and we see her regularly uh, on the East Coast, in New Brunswick, in Nova Scotia, PEI, and, and in Newfoundland. So, uh, you know, that uh, is important, that, that um, Elizabeth... Uh, truly has a, a national vision and sees every region in this country as an important uh, part of our nation. David Kuhn has been with us, leader of the Green Party provincially in New Brunswick. Uh, a flock of former NDP candidates, uh, about 14, went from uh, the NDP party to the Green Party as the Green Party continues to pick up spe- uh, steam both provincially and federally across the country. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great speaking with you and meeting you on the radio, Scott. Take care. Here's also uh, the executive member of the NDP party, John Richardson, from Atlantic Canada, why he defected. There are no candidates for the NDP in New Brunswick or, or PEI for the federal election. They've, I've actually just received a call from the organizer, you know, pleading for my help to keep finding these candidates. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, this is a decision that I've made. I've uh, uh, informed them of that decision. And All right, let's bring in Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Welcome back to class. Well, thank you. Are we making more of this than really need be here? Uh, Yeah, probably, but it's, you know, the lead up to the election. And, you know, there's some things here which, uh, you know, clearly are playing in the broader narrative. Uh, I mean, last week we were talking about the NDP's difficulty nominating candidates generally. Uh, and so this is another piece of bad news in terms of their capacity to uh, try and be convincing with Canadians. Uh, you know, it suggests some further internal disorganization uh, or lack of capacity in the run-up to the election. Is this the party or the leader? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's several things going on. I mean, certainly... Um, Overall, with the difficulty uh, vetting candidates and getting them in place uh, in time, it suggests that uh, the leader hasn't prioritized certain forms of operational competence in terms of getting those things done. Um, Perhaps also not paying attention to keeping uh, members happy, even in areas where you're unlikely to have success. Um, So, I mean, I think that certainly uh, is going to be a difficult piece for uh, Mr. Singh to try and manage. Uh, on the other hand, it's also a bit of an opportunity for him because, I mean, yesterday he had his new ad out about this a leader unlike the others. Um, and so, you know, some of the reasoning of the New Democratic Party's um, former provincial candidates moving over to the Green Party, you know, is based on the fact that, you know, people don't want to vote for a man who wears a turban. And uh, I think the NDP today has been trying to turn that around and say, well, that's sort of the, you know, the exact wrong approach to take. You know, people will... Uh, you know, maybe see him as a leader unlike the others in that respect, but there's other reasons why they might uh, embrace that identity. Uh, do you think a lot of it has to do with his race, with his turban? I mean, at the end of the day, it's not like the NDP was doing that much better prior to Jagmeet Singh. I mean, they really haven't done much since the Jack Layton days. Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's kind of two things going on there. I mean, you know, the polls show that there are a considerable number of Canadians who feel uncomfortable voting for someone uh, who uh, displays his faith in in that manner. I mean, so, you know, that's what the polls are indicating. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I think, you know, it does take a certain number of voters off the map. Uh, That impression, though, is kind of in the abstract. I think when, uh, you know, leaders perform, people then make uh, decisions not solely based on that. And, you know, it becomes a somewhat more complicated mix. So, if you know, then I transport myself into a place like New Brunswick where trying to find candidates to run in a losing cause for the NDP, which it has been for most of the NDP's history, uh, is difficult work and, uh, you know, makes it easier for uh, potential candidates to say, well, not this time, because I'm already hearing it at work that people say, you know, this, you know, that it's just not going to pass or I'm not going to vote for someone for that reason. Uh, and provide them an additional reason uh, to feel uncomfortable or decide to go somewhere else. I did. I thought the opposite would happen here. I thought he would be viewed as a hip leader. He's a, G- a GQ kind of guy. He doesn't sort of represent the tweed and, and arm patch kind of NDP of the Stephen Lewis days. Uh, you know, cosmopolitan kind of guy. Um, you know, as well as. 
appealing to to new Canadians and such because of his ethnicity. I thought it would honestly be a benefit for them. Are you surprised we are where we are, or they are where they are? Uh, I mean, not entirely. I mean, I think if you look at the candidates that the NDP's managed to attract, uh, I think uh, Jagmeet has been a, had a big role in that in terms of... Uh, generally a uh, younger, more diverse uh, slate of candidates yeah. than one has seen uh, historically. And presumably when the election starts, uh, they will put a lot in trying to sell that appeal. But uh, I think the other part of it is that as uh, a leader, he's had a harder time raising money and getting the organization in place. And, you know, to be able to sell yourself and uh, how you're going to do politics differently and your ideas, you need a platform, you know, you need you need the funding and the organization that allows you to be seen and heard and uh, I think he's been less successful on that front, and so will really require uh, the stage that's provided by an election, because people are looking every day to see what the leaders are saying. Uh, you know, he'll really have to make his mark in that context, because I think he's he's been unable to uh, really amass the, the organization to do that ahead of the election. Uh, should we look at this as the Greens picking up serious momentum ahead of the next election? Um I wouldn't necessarily see it that way. I mean, I think certainly in New Brunswick, the fact that they have become the de facto third party um, and really replace the NDP in that role provincially, uh, you know, shows up in these decisions that, you know, for uh, activists who don't see themselves in the Liberals or the Conservative Party, they may see themselves in the Greens in some places more than the NDP now as as a viable party. Um, So, I mean, I think it, it plays there. I mean, federally, uh, I don't. I haven't seen you know such a huge bump for the Greens. Uh, the NDP is you know down a bit. Sometimes the Greens are up, but uh, you know not. It's, I don't see. I haven't seen a major bump in, in that in that way. Is it time for the Greens to start explaining what they'll do beyond saving the planet? Although I guess that is important. But uh, what about second, third, and fourth? Uh, and, and let me ask you another question. On top of that, uh, their slogan "Not left, not right, forward together." Is that resonating because it's so different? Uh, I don't know. Has anyone heard that slogan? I mean, I just mentioned it. it just came. It just, they just all came out yesterday. Yeah, uh, th- their slogan is uh, "Not left, not right, forward together." Right, which is, I guess, the liberals is choose forward. Choose forward. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then the conservatives, it's time for you to get ahead, uh, and the NDPs is in it for you. There well, you I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, to start with, the Greens haven't actually had to explain what they're going to do on their core issue of the environment. I mean, they have a plan. Uh, you know, but in some ways it was judged less credible than the NDP's in terms of its promises when it went through the kind of the fact-checking, at least uh, at the CBC. So, um, you know, I think the Greens are really relying on two things. On the one hand, uh, for people who don't want to vote for uh, any of the mainstream parties, they become uh, an interesting uh, choice to sort of say a pox on the houses of all those others. Yeah. And the second is uh, as kind of just, uh, showing green, so people voting because they want the environment to actually be an issue taken seriously by the parties that are likely to get elected. And so, you know, it's a valuable role in terms of uh, bringing together a block of voters and forcing the other parties to have to take that issue more seriously. But I don't think the voters for it are actually, uh, you know, responding to a very specific or necessarily, you know, what would be a terribly successful set of policies for dealing with uh, ecological emergency. Peter Graff has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We have been watching uh, uh, very cautiously uh, in regard to all the protests that have been going on in Hong Kong of late. I think, what, they're up to like 14 weeks, uh, I believe, 14 weeks of, uh, of demonstration. This all started... Uh, with a bill that was put forward by Carrie Lam. Um, she is, uh, uh, I guess, the uh, head honcho in Hong Kong and the liaison between the Chinese government and the people of Hong Kong. Uh, very recently, she announced a, a bill which would suggest that anybody or, or those that had committed crimes in Hong Kong may be tried in China through their judicial system, which certainly is uh, a lot harsher than the judicial system in Hong Kong, which was formed under British rule for many years. Uh, so this all started with this bill that was introduced that if you committed a crime in Hong Kong, uh, you could be taken away to China and tried there and... Lord knows what happens once you're in that system. Uh, we certainly know with the two Michaels and the two detained Canadians, 
what that can be like. And of course, uh, as well, a convicted drug dealer who was sentenced and now finds himself retried and on death row in China. So you can understand the apprehension from anyone in Hong Kong who was uh, committed a crime and then going to be dragged off to China in order uh, to be uh, to be tried or prosecuted or what have you. Uh, that set off a series of protests which have continued uh, right up until the present, uh, uh, present time. And uh, as I said, I think we're into 13, 14 weeks of these ongoing uh, demonstrations. And now... And now it appears that uh, Carrie Lam has withdrawn uh, this bill. Uh, The proposal, which was introduced in April, would have allowed criminal suspects to be extradited to mainland China. Uh, The bill was suspended in June, but Ms. Lam stopped short of scrapping it. Now it's full withdrawal of this bill. It was one of the five key demands of protesters who want full democracy uh, some rejected Mrs. Lamb, uh, Ms. Lamb's move uh, and vowed to keep protesting uh, either way. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University, and is with us now. Charles, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you, Bill. So uh, it's Scott, not Bill. Uh, by the way, Charles, uh, where are we with this discussion? I mean, 13, 14 weeks of nonstop demonstration, all in regard to this bill. It was suspended. Now it's been officially withdrawn. Why now? Well, I think that certainly the Chinese authorities are concerned that the demonstrations don't seem to be petering out and that the demonstrators seem to be more and more angry about uh, how the police dealt with the peaceful demonstrations, and and it's emboldened them to make further demands beyond the original demand, which would have been the withdrawal of this uh, extradition proposal, um, to want to have the Chinese government fulfill its original promise to allow for election of the chief executive officer of Hong Kong uh, through universal suffrage, So, you know, the Chinese um, protesters have made five demands. Among those, in in addition to those two, they also want the thing not to be characterized as a riot. And secondly, that the the over 1,000 people who have been arrested should be released without charge. And thirdly, that there should be an investigation of the police brutality against the demonstrators. So they've got one out of five so far. I don't think that this will diffuse the crisis. Uh, it, it may simply embolden them to want to go for more. It, uh, it's really hard to it's really hard to say how this is going to play out. But I think ultimately the Chinese government is between a rock and a hard place here. If they send in the military to put it down by force and impose a martial law in Hong Kong against a hostile population, that will not be helpful to the celebration of the 70th anniversary of the regime on October the first coming up. And if they, uh, if they, you know, if the demonstrations continue the way they are, then the anniversary will be over overwhelmed by the Hong Kong demonstrators expressing to the world that, you know, the 70 years of Chinese communist rule has not been as uh, as depicted, and in fact, they're highly dissatisfied with the way the communists have been running China. So, you know, their main hope would be to give in to the demos- to the protesters and then um, have the protests stop and, and some kind of uh, peace restored to Hong Kong before the 1st of October. So if this concession doesn't work, my guess is that further concessions will be made. Any chance that they will move on those other demands? That, as you said, there's one or two of the five. Uh, what are the chances of them moving on all five? And, well, what, and would that settle things down? Hard. I don't I don't think they're going to go for that, but... You know, certainly an investigation of the uh, of the police brutality is something that the government could do. Uh, currently, the the chief executive, in her statement earlier today, indicated that she, there's a police complaints commission that would look at it. That probably doesn't satisfy the demonstrators, and she says that the charges against the protesters cannot be dropped because of Hong Kong's judicial system. And she says, well. You know, we we uh, the, characterizing it as a riot has no legal presence, so it's hard to say to what extent she can move. I I was watching the Chinese news, the mainland Chinese news on on the TV. Um, you know, you can get it here in St. Catharines by the internet, and the Chinese mainland news makes absolutely no mention of this concession whatsoever. 
So whether it's something that's being done by the Chinese local authorities without the agreement of Beijing, or whether Beijing um, wants to disassociate themselves from a softer line, uh, will be seen in the days ahead. Uh, do you think that uh, Carrie Lam would be doing this without the support of Beijing? Uh, you know, it's a complicated question. I don't think that there's unity within the Chinese Communist Party on how they're handling this, and the, um, they're having a meeting of the uh, of the Central Committee coming up, and I think that there will be a lot of discussion of the current leadership of China under Xi Jinping, both for this Hong Kong situation and the um, world's condemnation of the of the cultural genocide policies in the, Turk, the among the Turkic Muslims in in Western China, the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs, and of course the fiasco with regard to the breakdown in negotiations with the United States over trade. So, you know, I think there's a lot of instability in China now, and and Carrie Lam is is in a very, very difficult position. I must say, watching her make that statement, she looked extremely ill at ease, which I don't think can be a good sign. Uh, So whose side is Carrie Lam on? Is she a puppet for China, or is she defending the democracy and the rights of those in Hong Kong? Well, uh, she's certainly not defending democracy, and, and certainly she's someone who has been assigned by Beijing to assume this role. I don't think she has a lot of future in the regime because of how badly things have gone in Hong Kong under her watch. But to what extent this extradition law proposal came out of her and to what extent it was something that was ordained by Beijing is still unclear. I think the the Beijing authorities were more interested in Hong Kong putting together a security law than uh, an extradition law. So it may be that uh, Carrie Lam has not been uh, fully compliant with the directions of Beijing in, in the way that she's been managing Hong Kong, and this could lead to her being in trouble both with Beijing and with the people of Hong Kong who are very unhappy with the way things have gone due to her, um, due to the extradition matter. Um, would the world view uh, the fact that the world is watching all of this, how, how does that uh, affect China's decision here? I mean, China does not back down. Can- Canadians are certainly aware of, of the hardball that China can play with the two Michaels and such. Are you surprised they blinked here? Uh, I'm not surprised. I think that they're desperate to try and find a solution. I, I think that they were hoping that once uh, school resumed, uh, as it did a couple of days ago, that, that the demonstrators who are primarily younger people who are still at high school and university would, would just pack it in after, as you say, almost 14 weeks of, uh, of daily um, incidents. But uh, that's not happening, and, and the degree of, of anger among Hong Kong people has been increasing. So I think the regime is, is uh, pretty much grasping at straws here. Of course, if they'd propose, if they'd follow through with the withdrawal of the extradition proposal, you know, when this all started back in April, we wouldn't have the situation in Hong Kong that we have today. But it has been, I think, very instructive to countries like Canada about um, the nature of the Chinese regime and the desire of Chinese people for uh, freedom, democracy, and their human rights. And so I think we really have to rethink our idea that the Chinese communist uh, regime represents the genuine aspirations of people in China or that it's as stable as we, as we may have been led to believe. Uh, so obviously there's chinks within the armor within the Communist Party of China. Are they going to have difficulty in the future redefining themselves, especially if they have to loosen the grasp on Hong Kong? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, a, a factor that really frightens them is the idea that if they're seen as making concessions in Hong Kong, that we could see mass incidents of protests occurring in, in other cities in China. I mean, this is the way that the previous regime, the, the nationalists, fell to the communists who organized students to do these sorts of protests uh, in the years after the Second World War, before the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. So they've seen this movie, and they know how it plays out. But I, I, I am wondering, you know, really, if the Chinese Communist Party can sustain in any event. There are just so many aspects of their rule that are not consistent with the values of Chinese people and international norms. And, and you know, Marxism as, a, as an ideology, I think, is pretty much played out throughout the world. So that is the legitimating basis for a Chinese Communist Party 
is not a very uh, is not a very solid thing to, for them to be relying on. Many so many around the world are are questioning their view and their impression of China and doing business with them. We've talked about this before on the show. Uh, for the last several decades, China obviously uh, being seen as the golden goose, the land of opportunity. We bow over. We do everything we can in order to gain their trust. Right. Uh, then all of a sudden, they detain two Canadians. They start playing hardball with the rest of the world, and all of a sudden, attitudes towards China uh, start changing. Uh, many have said that you know, uh, under the new president in in China, that they've taken a, a much more hardline approach. Could that be splintering? I mean, many say that this is China's century. Could this all derail that? Well, I think that it's possible. I mean, aside from the arrest, you know, the arbitrary arrest of of two Canadians who I think are are clearly not uh, guilty of any sort of crimes in China, including espionage, you know, they haven't produced any evidence whatsoever to suggest that Kovrigan's favor were engaged in any sort of activities threatening the Chinese state, but they've also behaved very badly in in arbitrarily banning the import of Canadian agricultural commodities on no basis whatsoever, causing you know great disruption for huge numbers of Canadian farming families in the in the canola seeds and soybeans and and meat production. So, you know, from that point of view, I think it's been bad news from the human rights point of view, and increasingly. It's being seen that China is not a reliable partner for for international trade because they just don't deal fairly in a, in a reciprocal way in accordance with international standards. So, I think that is causing a lot of um, of concern. Um, you know, we'll see uh, if the indications that our next ambassador in Beijing will be Dominic Barton, who is very much a business associated person. Um, Your thoughts on that? I'm I'm concerned um, about this. Uh, Mr. Barton's firm uh, had a meeting uh, just last year in the same area as China has the internment camps for the Turkic Muslims, and uh, you know he has not been someone who we have previously seen as having a comprehensive view of the relationship beyond the economic one. So I, I am uh, I am I am concerned about uh, what sort of signal we're sending to China and the world by appointing. Um, this particular person, but, you know, it's too soon to say. We'll see what happens when he gets into power. And the ambassador doesn't make policy. He simply carries it out. So if our government decides to do a reset with China, then Mr. Barton will will be uh, carrying the ball in that. Uh, Is the hard line that China is taking, the the hard line stance that they're taking, is that working for them? Are they reconsidering this? Is uh, Or is this just further politics, what they're doing in Hong Kong right now by backing down? Well, I think that certainly the, the Chinese Communist Party is under threat in all sorts of areas, economically, socially, you know, the enormous gap between rich and poor in China, between the Chinese Communist Party elite and and ordinary people who really feel that, you know, they, there should be more emphasis on social welfare programs, health care and education than there is now. And and in general, they, the decline in the economy because of, you know, the strong state control and, and problems in the banking system and so on. So there are all sorts of reasons aside from, you know, Internet censorship and, and uh and repression and and a lack of ju- of justice in the judicial system that threatens the regime. So the regime has gone to a very harder and harder line and more and more repressive in the in the purpose of of it being their self-preservation because they saw what happened in the Soviet Union and they've seen the color revolutions in Eastern Europe and they don't want to go down that path. But eventually I don't think any political party stays in power forever and and eventually we'll probably see a, a better days for China, and I hope that those days come soon. What about Donald Trump's handling of China and how he's pressuring them with trade uh, t- tariffs and such? Uh, is is he finally saying what needed to be said on the world stage? Although doing <laughs> although doing it perhaps uh, with a lot less diplomacy than most. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with the way you put it there, uh, Scott. Um, you know, the, the thing is that that Mr. Trump has gone into this unilaterally with China. All the nations of the world have the same concerns over China's non-tariff barriers, um, uh, use of arbitrary um, measures to try and and transfer um, 
proprietary manufacturing process and intellectual property from foreign companies over to Chinese companies. They just don't deal fairly in trade. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the, the use of cyber espionage to, to get um, uh, intellectual property without paying for it is just uh, unacceptable in, in normal interaction. So all of us have the same concerns about China. So the problem is that Mr. Trump should have been doing it in a coordinated way with all the nations of the world who have mm. the same increasing worries about how we can get a fair shake out of this enormous rising economic power. And he has not done that. And, you know, you see at the G7 meeting when really there should have been some, some consensus and coordinated action on China that the, the other partners just shied away from it because of the difficulty of of getting Mr. Trump round to the idea that it's better to work collaboratively with like-minded powers than, than to go it alone and, uh, and you know, engage in policies in ways which, in fact, will end up to be a disadvantage to Canada if he, exceed, if he succeeds in getting preferential access to the Chinese market for the United States and not for the rest of us. So, uh, you know, I think something had to be done about China. I don't think that we could have, that we should continue to tolerate China's violations of international norms in trade or in international governance and human rights. But um, unfortunately, our champion is Donald Trump, who, you know, is, mm. is an unstable element that that seems to be uh, doesn't a lot. It doesn't lend a lot of credibility to the discussion. No, I'm afraid not. No. Uh, with with Carrie Lam uh, withdrawing this extradition bill, will that calm the waters in Hong Kong? Will the protests continue this weekend? I think we'll still see more protests. I, you know, the protesters have got what they originally wanted, but the situation has deteriorated to the extent that I think it's very hard to get people to to simply decide that, uh, you know, we've achieved our goal and move back because, as I say, they've now got other goals. One, uh, you know, I watched the, the Chinese Twitter and so on. One one characterization was that it was putting a Band-Aid on rotting meat. Well, you know, mm. if that's the way they look at it, I don't mm. think that the that, that, that peace is going to be the next thing we see in this situation. Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Uh, Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.